You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for the Peak Church, located in Apex, North Carolina. Our church is striving to welcome all who are feeling disconnected from God. And so our hope is that over the next several minutes, you will connect with the God that we are talking about, and you'll resonate deeply with the life that this God wants for you. We hope you enjoy. Well, good morning again, friends, and welcome back for week two Week two of our Linton sermon series entitled, Me, Myself, and Why. Me, Myself, and Why. If you're new here to our church or you're new to a church that makes it their habit and their custom to celebrate the season of Lent, Lent is really just a season of introspection. It's a season that we use every year, the 40 days leading up to Easter, to do some spiritual interrogation to make sure that our lives are aligned with being the people we want to be, the people that God has called us to be. And so one of the tools that we're going to use this Lenten season to sort of arrive at answers to that question is none other than the Enneagram. The Enneagram. Raise your hand one more time if you know, you're familiar with the Enneagram, you've heard of this uh, tool before. Raise your hand if you've never heard of this thing before. I don't even know how to spell it or pronounce it. Uh, I tried to Google it earlier and couldn't even figure out I, E, I have no idea. And so I want to encourage you, if those of you for whom this is a new tool for you, you can actually go on our online bulletin that Julie alluded to earlier and you can find links there to take the assessment to find out which type you are. And number two, there's another link that describes what the heck they mean. So you can sort of click that and read, okay, it says that I'm most likely this type, my basic type is this. What does that mean? Uh, What does that look like in life? So I want to encourage you to go ahead and do that uh, if you are uh, sort of new to this tool. But I said this last week, and I want to say it again. It bears repeating. But the whole goal of this sermon series, don't get it twisted, the whole goal of this sermon series is not to convert you to the Enneagram, okay? But what this conversation is is it is a case to be made for you and I need, if not this tool, you and I need tools. We need disciplines. We need relationships that help us better understand ourselves if we want even a shot at better understanding who God is. Genesis 1 is super clear on this, that every single person you interact with, every single one of them is made in the image and likeness of God. That means that God's DNA is in each and every one of us, which also means that your and my Christian journey requires us to look for God not only out there, but in here. Amen? And so that's the conversation. Over the course of the next several weeks, we're going to dive into and dig into this tool to sort of answer, hopefully uncover some answers to that question of, God, who are you and why have you made me the way that I am? The Enneagram suggests that there's nine reasons for that, nine answers to that question. And just to give you a little bit of uh, warning, uh, when we first built the sermon series, we knew very well that it was not going to be possible, and it was also be pretty boring to try to do nine straight weeks of all the different types, right? Like, that would take forever. And so what we did was, what we opted to do is we opted to structure and organize this conversation into triads. Looks like this. So uh, the way that they break down the uh, Enneagram is each of those types fall into one of three triads. And those triads are meant to describe to you what is the primary uh, sort of processing center uh, of your life. What is the thing that you lead 
with. And so how many of you, as you're sitting here, as you're looking at this, maybe you've taken the test, maybe you haven't, how many of you would say you're more gut people, that you follow your gut more often than not? That's your default. You just sort of, you sort of intuit and perceive the situation and what needs to happen, and you go with your gut. How many of you are heart people? Heart people? By the way, you know if you're a heart person because you probably already cried this morning. Okay? A couple <laughs> minutes into worship, song came on. You're like, I don't know what's happening, but I'm having a... And how many of you are head people, mind people? You've been guilty and accused of being overthinkers, right? I want to encourage you that uh, why I like this breakdown so much is because it also seems to resemble what Jesus says, right? Jesus' great commandment in the Gospels is you and I are called to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, you might say that's your gut, and all of your mind, Right? We don't have a triad uh, for strength, but maybe that's like a Christian powerlifting group. I'm not entirely sure. <laughs> and so they can have that. And so what we're going to do today is today we're going to hone in on the mind. Those of us for whom we live in this mind triad, we, we, we process things most in our default states, in front, sort of thinking and working through and processing intellectually where I ought to go, who I ought to be, what actions I should or shouldn't take. And I want to encourage you as we engage in this conversation to pay really close attention. Pay really close attention because what you're going to find today is that what we're going to unearth, what we're going to discover is some of this stuff is going to teach you about you. It's going to apply to you and who you are all the time. Maybe you are one of these types. But the other thing that we're going to learn today is that while some of us, maybe we're not guilty of overthinking all the time, there are certain situations that you like to overthink. There are certain situations or relationships. Maybe it's like your mother-in-law or maybe it's your boss or something where immediately when you're in their presence, you move into that hyperactive overthinking mode. Or maybe for you, this is someone critical in your life. Maybe this is a boss, maybe this is a partner, maybe this is a parent that you have struggled to understand, you have struggled to love for the longest time because you just don't get how they are the way that they are. And so pay really close attention to that today because I believe that you're going to learn something. Something's going to be revealed to you that will help transform not only your relationship with yourself and other people, but with God himself. Let's dive in. So if you have your Bibles or smart devices with you, go ahead and return back to the passage we just heard read a couple of moments ago. A couple of moments ago, Liz read from Romans chapter 12. And to give you a little bit of context to the book of Romans, so uh, the book of Romans is a letter by Paul written to the early church in Rome, hence the name. And one of the things that I think we can intuit pretty early, one of the things that we, can, we observe very early is that my hunch is the population he's writing to the church that he's writing to, the group of Christians that he's writing to, are a bunch of overthinkers. They're a bunch of people who live in their brains. For them, faith is more of an intellectual exercise. It's something that they like to sort of debate with their friends, right? How do I know that? Well, because when you go back to Romans chapter 12, you specifically look at verses 1 and 2, it seems like he's calling them out on that, right? Verse 1 says this. So brothers and sisters, because of God's mercies, I encourage you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice that is holy and pleasing to God. In other words, what Paul is saying here is it's really tempting in life, and good Lord is it tempting in faith to make it a cerebral activity. If you're not careful, you can ponder faith, 
without actually ever having any intention of living your faith. It can be something that you think about uh, from time to time. It's something you sort of like, again, you debate with your friends. I'll never forget this. In college, I went to a worship service, and this pastor gave the most powerful sermon on love and the, the love we ought to have not only for God, but for every single human person. And we leave, I leave with a couple of buddies of mine, and we go to a coffee shop, and the only thing they want to talk about is, I wonder if uh, he was talking about the Greek word for love. Is it philia, or was it eros, or was it agape? You should do some research on this. Come on, let's dive in. Like, I'm ready to storm the freaking world and love my neighbors, like, radically, and they just want to have a Bible study on, well, what kind of love are we talking about here, right? We do this. We do this. Faith can almost always just be this thing we think about. We intellectualize to death. And what Paul is saying here is that if you want to be a true, the true worship, the true worship that's actually pleasing to God is one that isn't just living up here, but it lives in here. It lives in your hands. It lives in your feet. It lives in your body. You act out and embody this thing. Don't just think about it. He goes further. Verse 2, he says this. Furthermore, I'm going to challenge you. Don't be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We might interpret that as Paul saying, don't think like how everyone else thinks, or don't just settle for what you were taught to believe. Constantly ask God to come in and to renew your understanding, change your understanding. And so for some of you, this is going to be really hard because you intellectual types, you like to assume that you know everything, and so maybe, just maybe, Following Jesus is going to be sort of unlearning and then relearning. It's going to be sort of, i got to take down these things that I was taught to believe or I always assumed were true in order to truly receive who this God actually is in the person of Jesus. And so as you can see, as you can see, this passage was chosen on purpose for the people who occupy the mind triad. We need these reminders that Paul is talking about here in Romans chapter 12, particularly those of us who like to live up here, get preoccupied up here, we overthink and overanalyze everything, and or those of us who navigate the world always assuming we know everything about everything. So let's go ahead and, as we start, do a little bit more digging on what is the, who are these people? Who are these people? Or who are we exactly when we find ourselves uh, in this place? Here's an overview of the mind triad. We'll do this every time uh, for the next couple of weeks. We'll break it down and work it through. So how many of you, uh, so the, how many of you are fives, sixes, or sevens? You know your types. You're a five, you're a six, or a seven. So that means that you belong to the mind triad. You belong to the mind triad. We'll do the rest of them in the uh, con- uh, subsequent weeks. And so we already talked about this. What we know about the mind triad is that these are folks for whom the first place they start when they're processing new information, they're making decisions, they're sort of navigating the world as they start in the mind. They want to think about it. They want to process it. They want to gather more information, right? And this is really important. The reason why they do this is because one of the things that we also know, one of the things also about the Enneagram that it teaches us is it teaches us that every single one of us, the reason why we process things default in that way is because of our core emotions. Some of us navigate the world, and our core emotion, the sort of default emotion that we fall into more often than not, is shame. 
gosh, I don't feel like I'm enough, and, and what if they don't like me, and what if they don't want me, or what if they don't see me as valuable or, or, or beautiful, or anger. Some of you walk around, that's your default. You sort of go to work, and all the time you're just ticked off all the time. Like, how in the world do they think that way? Why would they think that was right versus that answer? Why would we ever want to pursue that path with our direction? So you see that there's sort of core emotions there, and then the mind triad is not shame, it's not anger, it's fear. The reason why the people of the mind triad operate this way is because deep down, they're afraid. Their default emotion is fear. The default question that bounces around in this brain all the time is what if? What if? I don't care. So again, don't get hung up on the terminology. Don't get hung up on the Enneagram stuff. How many of us have been plagued by that question before, what if, what if, what if, right? And so when you look at this, I love this so much because this is how you can always find out who belongs to the mind triad. If ever you want to like catch one out in the wild, okay? If you want to leave here today when you're going to go find one, just sort of like crocodile hunter, sort of snag them down. Here's what you do. If you ever want to catch a five, take them out to eat, but specifically take them to the cheesecake factory <laughs> and hand them their menu. Have you been to Cheesecake Factory lately? It's not a menu. It's a novel. It's heavy. It's a workout to hold the frickin' thing, let alone turn the daggum pages. And it's so funny because you'll take them out to eat, and the heart triad will go, you know, I'm just feeling a burger tonight. And they'll be done. They'll be gone. The gut doesn't even faster. They're like, yeah, sesame chicken, feeling it. Yep, here we go. We're moving on. And the mind triad is cowering in the corner. I don't know if I have enough information. I didn't have a chance to read all the descriptions. He was too fast when he came back with the drinks and then the things, and then he gave, he gave me the bread, and then he asked for the thing. I don't have enough. I don't know what's going on. I don't know if this is, like, I don't, what if I order this, and then someone passes by with something else I want, and I can't change my order at that time and place? What if it's dangerous? What if it's too spicy, not only on the way in, but on the, okay, you know what? <laughs> I'm going home. It was nice to be here. I'm going home. Too stressful. Don't want to be here. So once again, today what I want to challenge you to do is pay really close attention because we're going to break these down. And I want you to pay really close attention that what we're learning today, is it applicable to you all the time? Is it applicable to you some of the time in certain situations? Or is what we're going to learn today applicable to people in your life that you really love and care about and you're trying to understand? Because what you're going to find in each of these triads is that the way in which each of them are built, they're built in such a way, God designed us in such a way, where there are situations where we are an incredible gift, incredible gift to a situation, incredible gift to a relationship, incredible gift to a work environment, and because of how we are built, there are certain situations where that hardwiring is a liability. It actually keeps us from being used by God. So let's find out which is which. Let's go one at a time, okay? Let's go to fives. Let's go to fives, okay? So each of these uh, types, what I want to do is I want to break them down one by one because, again, generally, all three of these types ask the what-if question. They ask the what-if question. Their fear invokes the what-if question. But they ask a slightly different type of what-if question. 
So let's go to the investigator. The investigator, type five. So these are our scholars, our researchers, our learners. Their core desire is understanding. I want more information. I want to know uh, more about this thing, this hobby, or this work, or this new job that I've been asked to do. I want to know how to do it and how to do it well. And that's because their core fear is incompetence. They don't want to show up and look like a fool. They don't want to show up and look like they have no idea what they're doing. They don't want to show up and look like a newbie, right? And so when we go back to this what if question, we go back to this what if question. The question that always pops up for the five is what if I'm not able? What if I can't do this? Don't get hung up on the terminology. I guarantee you there are situations in your life, there's relationships, there's situations that you're placed in where this is the question that is just powerfully echoing in your brain. What if I can't do this? Friends, what I want to do for you today is I want to complexify this conversation a little bit because that question, even though it looks like a negative question, this question is both good for you and it is also obstructive to you. This question, on a healthy day, what it does is it actually protects and prevents you from living an ignorant life, from living a foolish life, from just walking around and making decisions completely uninformed of the consequences I'll tell you a story of this. Right before I entered into seminary, so the summer in between undergrad and seminary, I went and guest spoke at a church uh, a little bit, about an hour from here. And after I went and spoke, they sent me an email a couple weeks later, and they say, hey, our pastor's in the process of retiring. Would you like to be his successor and become our new pastor? <laughs> to which I was like, red flag, you don't even know me. You've known me for five minutes. You don't even know how crazy I am. Second of all, I don't anything about being a pastor yet. I want to, I'm definitely not able. There are all these stats that came out when I was an undergrad that said that, and Amanda knows this too, we've talked about this, that the average tenure of a pastor overall, overall, is 40% of the time they're out of ministry in five years. Can you believe that? You want to know what that stat does for those who don't go to divinity school, don't go to any sort of formal training? 75 to 80%. Why? Because they weren't able. They didn't have the tools, didn't have the resources, didn't do the equipping, didn't do the studying, and then what happened was the job became too much naturally because they didn't prepare or equip themselves for the task at hand. What if I'm not able? That question saved me. Saved me for making a really foolish decision. Now, conversely, this question has also been obstructive to me. It's also held me back from time, from different things from time to time. Those of you who know you're familiar with this question, you and this uh, question are deep, deep, last longing historical friends. You know that one of the things that this, in a negative sense, this question can do is it can also hold you back because it can cause you to live a very detached life a very inactive life, a very passive life. Because you have so much information, you actually cannot make decisions. I like to call this the target toddler syndrome. You've been to Target before and watched a child try to make a decision between which toy they can and can't get? It's brutal, bro. 
Last week, straight up, last week, I'm in there. Thank God it's not my child, but I'm watching this happen. I'm watching this kid. He's trying to decide. Does he want a Paw Patrol toy or does he want a Peppa Pig toy? Really good, really good options there, okay? There's a lot of pros and cons to each, and there's a lot to consider. Weigh, you're going to weigh it all, right? And so he's deliberating. He's commiserating. He's miserable. You can watch the dad. Dad's about to lose it. He's like, okay, um, so... Here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a lap. We're going to take a lap. We're going to let you think about it. We're going to let you process it because apparently you need more time. You're in the mind triad. We're going to take you around. He didn't say that, but we're going to walk around. We'll come back, and then you have to make a decision. So I'm staying in the same aisle. I don't move. I watch them leave. I kid you not. Two seconds later, another kid walks up, takes the last Paw Patrol toy. It took every bit of me to not intervene, to be like, hey, you don't understand. So, like, there's a situation with this toy, and I need you to, like, there's, so you're really going to cause a lot of problems. And so I really... I didn't do it, though. I stood there, and then I watched the kid come back, and I hear him, like, calling to his dad, I think I decided on the Paw Patrol toy! <laughs> if you're not careful, this question will keep you from actually living. Sure, you'll exist. You'll observe and skeptically and cynically, you'll get really good at critiquing life, but you won't actually ever live it. And so what does renewal look like? Romans 12. Romans 12, what does Paul say? You're gonna be, you need to be renewed. You need to be renewed. You need to be renewed. Your minds need to be renewed. What renewal looks like for fives is beginning to practice what I like to call informed decisiveness. Informed decisiveness. There is nothing wrong with getting information. There's nothing wrong with collecting more data than what you currently have. But it is absolutely an illusion to believe that you can have all the information. At some point, you're going to have to make a choice. At some point, you're going to have to make a decision. At some point, you're going to have to live. And as Christians, we have to live trusting that we're making decisions with the very limited information we have all the time, and we're hoping and praying, sweet Lord, please guide my steps. Proverbs chapter 16, humanity makes plans, the Lord directs our steps. I love that passage because what that teaches me is that it's okay to pray. And I've prayed this way a million times. I've said, okay, um, I've done all the prayer I can. I've done all the research I can. I am not 100% confident this is what you want me to do, but God, I'm going to step out. I'm going to do this thing that I feel like I'm supposed to do. And if I'm wrong, just please, God, stop me. Please take the steering wheel back and guide me back to where I'm supposed to go. Because I don't know. I'm taking a leap of faith. Please, I'm going to make a plan. You, Proverbs 16, direct my steps. And so for those of you for whom this question has been really hard for you, it's been good, it's also been bad, it's also been helpful and not helpful for us, Romans 12 renewal looks like living informed decisiveness. Let's keep moving. Let's go to type sixes. Type sixes are a little bit different, a little bit different. Here's again is the breakdown of the mind triad. Type sixes are the loyalist. The loyalist. We talked about this last week. The core desire for the loyalist is security, safety. They make really good parents. They make really good police officers. They can see danger before it ever happens. And so they can help a situation be prepared and ready to avoid that danger right? And so their core desire is security, and the reason that's also driven by is because their fear is unpredictability. They don't want to live in a chaotic world. They don't want to live in an unpredictable world. They don't want to live in a world where you're just sort of wandering out and living into risky situations with no thought or perception or preparation ahead of it. 
And so again, each of these types ask the what if question. We talked about type fives. Here's the version of the type uh, of the what if question that type sixes ask. They ask, what if it's dangerous? So again, they all ask the what if question. But sixes ask, what if it's dangerous? I don't care what type you are. Every single one of us knew what it was like to be a six during the pandemic, didn't we? Whether that was naturally your, your sort of core operating system or not, we had to live under the immense pressure of like, well, do I make this decision? Do I not make this decision? Does this harm me? Does this harm my kids? Does this harm my family member? We had to think about it all the time. Sixes asked this all the time, all the time. And again, this is where like, it's both and. It's light and it's dark. It's both a positive thing and uh, there's a shadow to it. I hate conversations in church where they, whenever we talk about fear, we talk about stuff like this, and we go, we'll be with people of faith. It's faith over fear. It's faith over fear. We don't do the fear. It's like, ugh, like, God, that's way too simple of thinking. Like, get out of here with that. Because quite frankly, fear saves you from stuff. You're out in the middle of the woods, you see a bear. Fear protects you, okay? It says, get the heck out of there. What if it's dangerous? That question protects us and others from harm. I wish, actually, quite frankly, that that question had surfaced when I was a youth intern when I was in divinity school at a field ed placement. You know why? I got asked to serve at the youth. We're out there having a great time of forming disciples in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. And how we do that is we play dodgeball, okay? We play dodgeball. And the kids are begging me to play. I'm new, been there for two weeks. They're like, come on, you gotta play, Kyle, you gotta play, you chicken, come on, you better play. Ain't nobody called me a chicken. So, and I'm competitive. So I was like, I go out there and I play. I go out there and I play. And there's always a kid, oh, oh, oh boy. There's always a kid in every youth group who makes it their personal life goal to just drive you insane. <laughs> so the whole game, he's just picking on me. He's picking on me. He got me out a couple of times. We play three games. I'm out every single time. The fourth game, I'm like, forget that. He's going to meet his maker today. Here we go. <laughs> It's youth group. That's what we're here for, right? Meet the maker. <laughs> so I get the ball, and I'm just sort of lurking in the back, lurking in the back, and then I just whiz this thing. Problem is, he ducks, and it smashes sweet, sweet Daniel in his brand new glasses. And then I was there thinking, gosh, what if this was dangerous? Why didn't anyone ask me that? Why did no one say this was probably not something to do? And so we need this question. We need this question to show up if we want to protect ourselves and others from harm. And also, not or, and also, you've got to be really careful about not allowing that same exact voice to hold you hostage. Because you go back to that question, what if it's dangerous? If you let it, if you let that question of what if it's dangerous, what if it's risky, if you let that question rule your life, you will live a paralyzed life. You hear me? You will live a very small life. Very small life. I think about this all the time. That when I go back to the story of the calling of the disciples, that what if, so 12 eventually show up and follow Jesus, what if Jesus actually asked a whole lot more? What if Jesus asked a hundred people, come and follow me, come be a part of this mission, come be a part of this movement? And 12 said yes, 88 said, 
Oh, that sounds kind of dangerous. Do you guys have traveling accommodations, or um, do you guys validate for you know travel expenses, or are there any of those sorts of? I don't know. Like, it, does anyone have any antibacterial cream? Like, I don't know. It just feels like you're going out into the wilderness, and you, never mind. I'm just going to pass. Thank you. A little too dangerous for me. What if the reason, the only reason why we have twelve, is because too many people back then, shoo, and today hear the call of Jesus, feel the stirring of the Spirit, and they go, eh, I don't know. A little too dangerous for me. Or, even worse, we keep engaging faith, but when we turn Jesus into a nice, safe, calm, domesticated Jesus. What does renewal look like for them? What does renewal look like for you? Romans 12, renewal looks like this. It looks like being a cautious risk taker. Listen, friends, absolutely. If you are someone for whom that question is, you're a lifelong friend. What if it's dangerous? You guys are lifelong friends. I get that, and that is a good and healthy thing to incorporate. But if you're not careful and you let it have all the power over your life, what you'll begin to do is you'll begin to believe very falsely that there is such a thing as a riskless life. There is no such thing especially following Jesus. There ain't no such thing as a riskless life. Take up your cross and follow me, Jesus said. Leave your family, your hometown, and follow me, Jesus said. Romans 12 renewal looks like, what it looks like for you in this season is saying, okay, I'm going to be cautious. I'm going to make preparations. I'm going to do my sort of due diligence, but at some point, I'm probably going to have to jump. some point, I'm going to have to follow. And the last one is this. last one is this. Type 7. Type 7. So let's go back to our uh, mind triad. You know, we got the investigator. We got the loyalist. And finally, we got the enthusiast. We got the enthusiast. Easily the funnest person in every room. Uh, the best person to invite to a party. Why? Because their core desire is fulfillment. They constantly want to fulfill life. They want to make sure that they're experiencing life. And the reason for which is because their core fear is deprivation, being deprived of fun, being deprived of life, being deprived of a particular experience. We all have heard the term YOLO, created by a seven, right? The person responsible for dipping French fries into a Frosty, making sure that like, even envisioning that as an idea, had to be a seven, right? Had to be a seven. You go to downtown, there's a burger that calls, it's called, um, my mom said it wouldn't sell. You guys had this burger before? For those of you who haven't, it was created by a seven who sat down and said, well, I like peanut butter. And I like cheeseburgers. And a beautiful, wonderful creation was born. The enthusiast. Their version of this question. Their version of this question is what if I miss out? So they don't necessarily obsess about the question of, you know, what if I'm not able or what if it's dangerous? Their question is, what if I miss out? What if I get deprived of something I really want to do, something I really want to be? And friends, that again is an incredible gift. That question needs to cycle through your and my mind, your and my life. Because otherwise, if it doesn't, what you will do is you will run the risk of living a very dull life. 
you'll live a very unfulfilled life. You'll reach the end, you'll realize you actually didn't live at all. You just existed. I'm so thankful that early in my journey, when I was still coming, I was still sort of working through faith and thinking through faith and trying to sort of make a decision there. I'm so glad that one of the people who early discipled me was a seven. Now, we didn't talk about the Enneagram back then. And so, Kyle, how do you know he's a seven? Well, you take a guess. How he proposed to his wife is they went skydiving. And as they were coming down to earth in huge letters, will you marry me? He told that story in front of one of the other youth leaders. And he was like, yeah, I proposed at Burger King. Uh, don't tell my wife that story, okay? And I need you to not tell that story. And I need all of you to swear to secrecy. Do not tell that story. But what I love so much about Alan, that was his name, is Alan would always ask this question of, what if you're missing out? What if? And again, I'm like a new believer, don't necessarily know if I'm going to be all in on the Jesus thing or not. He's like, what if you're missing out? What if you're missing out on a life that's 10 times better than the one you would settle for on your own? Sure, your life is fine. But don't you want what Jesus says, what Jesus calls life abundant. Friends, if ever you come to places like this or you engage in anything Christian and it seems boring, (laughs) ain't God's problem. It's our problem. We're doing it wrong. Anytime you show up to church and you're like, yeah, it just doesn't really feel like it's stimulating, like that means we are doing it wrong. We also have to be careful. Because this FOMO, this YOLO sort of voice that echoes through your heart and your mind, it is absolutely a gift. But friends, it also can be a liability. It can also obstruct you. It can also hold you back. How? Well, if you become someone who only asks that question of what am I missing out? What am I missing out? What am I missing out? What you could end up with is actually a very discontent life. You could end up living a very restless existence. You could spend all your time asking, what am I missing? What am I missing? What am I missing? And you can't see the thing right in front of you. So you're constantly dreaming about someone else's relationship, or you're constantly daydreaming about someone else's job, someone else's life. And good Lord, and I'm not one of those people who bags on social media, but this is one of the sort of, again, gift and liability. One of the liabilities of it is you have access to everyone's life, and then you go home every night, and you think about it, and you go, gosh, what am I doing? What am I, why do I have that? And you live the rest of your life not grateful, but jealous, envious of other existences out there. God don't want that either. So for those of you for whom this is your question, or maybe, again, maybe this is not your default question, but there's certain situations, right? There's certain parts of your life where, what if I miss out? That, that voice is just sort of like speaking to you all the time. What renewal looks like for you, Romans 12 renewal, what Romans 12 renewal looks like for you is living a life of lively contentment. Lively contentment. Yes, pursue a life that is alive and rich and abundant and beautiful but also pay really, really close attention between when am I supposed to strive for more and when am I supposed to be grateful for what I got? When am I supposed to practice contentment? 
satisfaction with what I have so that I don't run the risk of living my entire life running after something that I had the whole time. Paul says it beautifully. In Philippians chapter 4, he says, I've now found that the secret to life, the secret to this existence is being content in whatever my circumstances might be, being grateful for the life that I've been given. Now, close here. For those of you who occupy this triad, those of you for whom this is your default personality, or for those of you who certain situations bring this out in you. As we close today, I want to say one more thing to you, and on behalf of the whole church, it's something that's overdue. It is the words, I am sorry. The church owes people like this an apology. And the reason for which is because for too long, we've treated the thinkers, the people who naturally worship God with their mind first, we have historically treated these folks as the enemy, as the opposition, as the problem. They show up in Sunday school, they show up in Bible study, and they got questions. They just want to know, they want to understand. Before they give their whole life to this Jesus person, oh, I don't know, they just want to understand what they're signing up for. And routinely, what folks like me, folks in Sunday school class have said to them is, oh, you just need to stop listening to that question, and you just need to believe. You see, friends, we owe you an apology because while that's been the recent habit of the church lately, that actually isn't who we used to be. Do you know that? Historically, here in the church, we actually used to be something way different. Back in the days of Augustine and Anselm of Canterbury, back in the, as, as early as the 300s, there were quotes in churches that said this. So you Latin scholars, here we go. Okay, anybody translate this for me? Fides querens intellectum. Come on, come on. Some of you are searching desperately. You're like, I took Latin in undergrad, and I just did it for pass-fail grade. I have no idea what he's talking about. Faith, seeking, understanding. That's actually who we used to be. On our best day, that's actually who we are. People who have deep, deep faith, but we are constantly, always seeking things we don't know that we can have access to, we can know. And so, friends, I don't care who you are. This is what healthy faith and healthy relationship with Jesus looks like. It almost reminds me of, do you remember the D.A.R.E. ad? Some of you are like, whoa, that's nostalgic. You remember the D.A.R.E. ad that put the little picture of the frying pan and the egg in there? And it was like, this is your brain, and then this is your brain on drugs. You remember this ad? Some of you are like, I have no idea uh, what he's talking about. Ironically, whenever I saw that commercial, it never made me not want to do drugs. It just made me hungry. Sometimes I'd already had breakfast. I was like, I'm turning into a hobbit. I'll have second breakfast. Here we go. Let's do it. <laughs> I was thinking about that earlier this week because, friends, a faith that only chooses one or the other, this is what your brain looks like. A brain that only, only sees value in reason, only trusts that which you have been taught or that which you have the ability to fully comprehend and understand. This is what it looks like. You're only accessing a very tiny, tiny part of the picture. 
but it's not any better on the other side. Especially in spaces like these, we've got folks who say, nope, it's faith only. If, if, if my preacher doesn't say it, and if my Sunday school teacher didn't prescribe it, if my parents didn't, you know, if, if a certain interpretation of Scripture doesn't confirm what I already believe, I don't trust it. And as a result of that, this is what your brain looks like. This is what your mind looks like. And the longer your faith looks like this, your relationship with God will look the same way. Very small, very contained, box-like even. And so my challenge to you this Lent is I want you to use this opportunity. Lent is a really beautiful opportunity. It's a 40-day period where you can sort of, it's bite-sized, where you can say, you know what, I'm going to make some changes this Lent. And the changes that I want to invite you to, I want to challenge you to consider this Lenten season. Is to say to the Spirit, Spirit, I'm going to invite you into my mind this year. Maybe for the first time in a long time, I'm going to invite you to invade my mind, invade my thinking. Maybe what's going to happen this Lent, if you let him, if you let the Spirit sweep through and blow through, what will happen is you'll feel this pull out of your mind and into your life. Maybe for the first time in a long time, your faith is going to move from something that's just cerebral, something you ponder from time to time, to something you actually do, something you actually embody. Maybe for you, if you invite the Spirit to move and to blow through your mind, maybe what will happen is your mind will change. And maybe that's the scary part. Maybe that's the reason why you haven't invited the Spirit to do that. Because maybe, just maybe, the Spirit will change everything you've ever believed about yourself, about the world, about God, even. But none of those are reasons, at least for me, that are good enough not to do it. So this Lent, I dare you, I dare you to ask the Holy Spirit to fall fresh on your mind this season. Fall fresh on the things that you've always imagined and and conceived God to be, the Christian life, what it looks like. And then be ready when you begin to watch a lot of the things that you always held to be true to be flipped upside down. Thank you for listening to the Peak Podcast. Make sure you subscribe wherever podcasts can be found. For more information on how to get connected with our church, please visit us at thepeakchurch.org.